welcome back to the wise man's page the daily podcast where we read patrick rothfuss's the wise man's fear page by page this is chapter 75 page 504 the players over the next few hours of walking i did my best to get to know the men alvarin had saddled me with i speak figuratively of course as one of them was a woman and we were all five of us afoot Tempe caught my eye first and held it the longest, as he was the first Ada mercenary I'd ever met. Far from being the imposing hard-eyed killer I'd expected, Tempe was rather nondescript, neither particularly tall nor heavily built. He was fair-skinned, with light hair and pale gray eyes. His expression was blank as fresh paper. Strangely blank. Studiously blank. I knew Ada mercenaries wore blood-red clothing as a sort of badge, but Tempe's outfit was different than I'd expected. His shirt was held tight against his body with a dozen soft leather straps. His pants, too, were belted tightly at the thigh and calf and knee. Everything was dyed the same bright and bloody red, and it fit him snugly as a gentleman's glove. As the day grew warm, I saw him begin to sweat. After living in the cool, thin air of the stormwall, he must have found the weather to be disproportionately hot. An hour before noon, he loosened the leather straps of his shirt and peeled it away, using it to wipe the sweat from his face and arms. He didn't even seem slightly self-conscious about walking the king's highway naked to the waist. Tempe's skin was so pale it was almost the color of cream, and his body was lean and sleek as a coursing hound, his muscles shifting under his skin with an animal grace. I tried not to stare, but my eyes couldn't help but pick out the thin, pale scars that crossed his arms and chest and back. He never offered a word of complaint about the heat. Words of any sort seemed rare from him, and he responded to most questions with a nod or a shake of the head. He carried a travel sack like mine, and his sword, far from being intimidating, seemed rather short and unimpressive. That's the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. And I'm Nick. And I would like to interject to correct myself from yesterday, because this does, this takes place only hours after they've left uh, from Severin for good. So he hasn't known them for days. But you were right in that he is kind of making the introduction after he himself has actually met him. Yeah, like he's he's introducing us to these characters uh, having already met them himself. Yes, and I, I feel like part of it is that he's also now less hungover and so he sort of now has the time to get the measure of them, mm-hmm. which is a piece of writing I like from Rothfuss that like Quoth's head is elsewhere when he actually meets them so he doesn't relay it to us, the reader. Yeah, I can dig that. So we get our very first Adam mercenary, and we get our very, very first bit of uh, foreshadowing about the sword tree uh, on this page. I think we are perhaps meant to take the scars as being from fights, but they're all long and thin and pale. uh, And we can later, now that we know about it, understand that they come from the Adam sword tree. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I was thinking as I was reading this page, how much information about the Adem and about Foth's understanding of the Adem and their relationship, their sort of cultural relationship is delivered on this page. It's really exquisitely done. Tempe has a very different relationship to like his body and modesty than other people do because he he has no problem like walking around shirtless. Uh, and it seems like everyone else thinks that's a little bit, you know, on the King's road, I could never. But at the same time, uh, we also get that he's like he's quiet and not stripped and we we might take that to mean at first that he's just like a taciturn person 
and we learn only later that that's actually like a cultural taboo that like the the Adam communicate much more with body language than they do with with words. And and I like the detail of his his outfit as well because it does read to me as the sort of thing that a martial artist would wear because you don't want lots of billowing sleeves and whatever like flapping about when you're in a fight you want you don't want anything getting in your way or that anything someone else could use to grab onto you and like use against you so his clothes are kind of like wrapped tight around his body by these leather belts so there he can still move in them but they're not going to get in his way which i think is an interesting detail the way that you read tempe taking his shirt off on the king's road is different than the way that i read it because you read it as him not being like terribly uh, modest with his clothing and everyone else being modest i read it as everyone else is afraid to like bear their skin on the king's road because it's a dangerous road and your clothing protects you to some extent whereas to be shirtless would be more dangerous i agree with jeremy on this i think they're not particularly in a dangerous area just yet and if you're anywhere that's safe it's the king's road um, i read it as a cultural thing certainly but I think that's an interesting point, Jordana, because I also think that it's true that Tempe would probably be less afraid about getting ambushed because he's like, of anybody in this party, he's probably the best equipped to deal with an ambush. So it is kind of a mark of his confidence as a warrior. Because yeah, you're right. I, uh, no matter what your cultural mores are, I think it is inherently more vulnerable to have less clothing on. So I think that that is also like something we can't completely dismiss. But I will say that my reading is also informed by what we learn about the Adam later on, which is just that in general, they're way less stuck up and prudish about nudity and sex than the other cultures in Tamarind. Indeed. Yep. And they're very in tune with bodies. I wonder if the straps also have to do with like having bandages and tourniquets close at hand. Certainly the red clothing is, uh, is to you know hide blood. I'm sure you've heard the old joke. About the uh, the captain pants. who leads his thanks, Jordana. Yes, do you want to talk to you? <laughs> Sorry. Well, our listeners probably haven't heard the joke, so if you want to tell the joke, go ahead. Oh no, I'm I think good. I heard it Thank from you. you. I think they have. I think a lot of people have heard that joke. That said, I hang out with you guys a lot, and I definitely probably heard that joke first from you. I think I might have heard it from you. Anyway. Uh, there's a captain who's leading his uh, battalion to battle. Uh, they come to the first uh, the first battle, and it's it's just the vanguard. So uh, they're about to have a skirmish, and the captain says to his his batman, "Bring me my red shirt." And uh, then they have the battle. Uh, it's a sound victory, and uh, the captain takes off the red shirt and replaces it with his his dress uniform. They march on. The army encounters uh, another force, a smaller force. Uh, than them, but uh, certainly more than the the, the battle before. Uh, and the captain calls to his Batman and says, "Fetch me my red shirt." And the Batman does, and the captain puts it on. And then they they have the battle, and it's uh, it's just they barely squeak by, but they they manage to victory. Uh, tired and exhausted, uh, they march on. And while they're marching, the Batman says, "Sir, I, I have to ask about your red shirt. Why why do you have it?" And uh, the captain says, "Well, Batman, it is because should my enemy uh, cut me, they will not see me bleed." And uh, the Batman says, ah, I understand, sir, I understand. And they come to uh, another another battlefield, and there's a massive force full of cavalry and artillery. They haven't they haven't a chance. And the captain turns to the Batman and said, says, fetch me my brown pants. But I'm dumb. 
<laughs> yes. Anyway, so I, I feel like the Adam, uh, if there's any brown pants Adam out there, I don't know where I'm going with this. Um, <laughs> I know where I'm going with it, which is that I think that probably the most important foreshadowing we get on this page is Tempe's studiously blank face. Yes, and never offering a word of complaint. Words of any sort seem rare. Yeah, those those are details that maybe are, feel a little incongruous or confusing for a first-time reader. Uh, like, why is this important? Why are we thinking about this? And then later when we learn about Adam culture, we can come back to this and go, oh, okay, yeah. that's what's going well, on. Well, Quoth takes it as a, as a character trait. Um, and if, if the listeners have been paying attention or the readers have been paying attention, they will remember that Quoth says that like the Adam have a secret power where they hoard their words and use them like fuel. So you could be remembering this and be like, oh, they don't speak because it's their power. But it is, it is an important piece of foreshadowing, Jeremy. There's one thing I want to kind of use this as a jumping off point for. And that is that uh, Tempe is commented on as being particularly pale. And so I read this as him being like very, very pale, like, uh, you know, ghost white pale, essentially. And that's largely because I I see him as being a Caucasian person with fair skin. He's supposed to be, you know, pale and red haired. So he's probably a ginger. But it's it's I think it's not a stretch to kind of assume from the text that Quoth is like meant to be a white guy and that kind of the quote unquote standard that Quoth is comparing skin tones by is that of a white person. If, if Tempe is very pale, he is probably, you know, paler than the average European descended person. This reminds me of uh, the Trader Barry Cormorant and the attendant novels around it, which we've talked about on a recent Patreon episode, because there are uh, a race of pale skinned people in the Trader Barrow Cormorant, but if you're paying attention, it uh, is, you know, whenever they meet one of these people, they comment on how pale they are, and it's because everyone else in, in Barrow Cormorant is dark-skinned. And, you know, the, the author doesn't, like, go out of his way to say, like, oh, by the way, everyone here is black, or, you know, or from an island heritage. And, you know, there's lots of different, like, nationalities in it, but all the different nationalities are sort of loosely described as having, you know, a, a shade of skin that is kind of on the darker side of things. So when they meet a person who is like white, it's sort of like shocking to everybody because they're very othered from the sort of standard in that world, which is to be a little bit darker skinned. And I'm bringing this up because in a different book, in a book that hadn't maybe gone out of its way so much to indicate that Quoth is like pale skinned and, and red haired, you could take this as an argument that like the Adam are the outliers by being the white skinned people and everyone else is like noticeably more dark skinned. And that's something that I kind of appreciate in a book now that to like buck the toxic trend of like whiteness being the standard. And, you know, I'm not trying to to criticize Rothfuss here, uh, merely to use it as a jumping off point for a discussion about this kind of new paradigm that like, there's no reason that whiteness need be the standard. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, I think that Rothfuss already kind of is bucking a stereotype that we might expect because we know that the Adam are peerless warriors and that they kind of dress like ninjas. So we might assume that they're like East Asian looking. Uh, and we also know that the Adam come from like an arid mountainous desert. So we might assume that they're Middle Eastern looking. And Rothfuss says, no, they're like, they are a different ethnicity, but they're, they are just like, they look like Scandinavian people. Like that's what makes them like look weird. And I think that is a neat sidestepping of 
the thing that you see in fantasy novels, especially fantasy novels kind of written before this, or like, you know, you've got your, your Easterlings and your, your Haradrim. And there's someone, there's something even more like culturally insensitive in the Narnia books that I can't quite recall, where there's like a desert speaking culture who like have Jinnies and scimitars and they're all kind of like barbarous foreigners. And I think that Rothfuss is resisting that impulse to, to just, to, to make all your fantasy cultures like thinly veiled kind of stereotypical versions of, of real world cultures. And I think that what Seth Dickinson does is just kind of the next, the next evolution of that idea. That seems accurate. I haven't read all of Baru Cormorant, but based on Nick's description, that seems correct. Word. Well, you can look forward to more correct opinions on tomorrow's page. Uh, the Wind.